title of today's sermon is Something New, and it's taken from Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to live in America, to be a child, and to be salt and light in this place in which you've put us. Help us, Lord, to stand for truth, to be men and women of righteous acts. Help us, Lord. We, we know we're not perfect. We wouldn't want to be judged on anything that we did 36 years ago because we are changed people. Help us, Lord. As we study this scripture, bring the truth in it to our minds and hearts. Change our behaviors. Help us to walk in harmony with your will and your ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have attended a Seder? I see a few hands. That's great. Some of you then are aware that a Seder is the celebration of the traditional Jewish meal at Passover. Each year, the Jewish community gathers together in families to remember that God ushered them as a community out of Egypt. He took the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and brought them unto freedom. The word Seder means order. It implies that the Passover meal is to be done in an orderly fashion. During the course of the meal, specific foods are eaten, four cups of wine are passed, four questions are asked, and written prayers are recited, as well as songs from the Hillel are sung. Central to the Seder is the plate of remembrance. It holds the food foods that represent the historical difficulties and the joys related to the nation of Israel's escape, exodus, from Egypt. The Seder plate explains how God took the chosen people out of slavery and into freedom. Please watch the following clip. This is Rebecca, and this is WatchMojo.com, and today we'll be looking at the celebration of the Jewish holiday of Passover. Passover is a Jewish and Samaritan holy day and festival commemorating the exodus from Egypt and the liberation of the Israelites from slavery. Passover is one of the most important religious festivals in the Jewish calendar. Jews celebrate the Feast of Passover, Pesach in Hebrew, to commemorate the liberation of the children of Israel who were led out of Egypt by Moses. Jews have celebrated Passover since about 1300 BC, following the rules laid down by God in Exodus 13. Passover begins on the 15th day of the month of Nisan, the first month in the Hebrew calendar, in accordance with the Hebrew Bible. The exodus of the Jews from Egypt took place in the spring, and so Passover must be celebrated in the spring. The highlight of Passover observance takes place on the first two nights, when friends and family gather together for ritual Seder meals. Lavish meals are prepared, and the story of Passover is told. With its special foods, songs, and customs, the Seder is the focal point of the Passover celebration. Seder means order, and the ceremonies are arranged in a specific order. Special plates and cutlery are used, which are kept exclusively for Passover. The Haggadah is a book which tells in 14 steps the story of the Jewish experience in Egypt and of the exodus and revelation of God. As the story of each of the ten plagues is read out, a drop of wine is spilled to remind Jews that their liberation was tinged with sadness at the suffering of the Egyptians. The Haggadah also contains songs, blessings, psalms,
qualms and four questions. These four questions are, why do we eat unleavened bread? Unleavened bread or matzah is eaten to remember the exodus when the Israelites fled Egypt with their dough to which they had not yet added yeast. Why do we eat bitter herbs? Bitter herbs, usually horseradish, are included in the meal to represent the bitterness of slavery. Why do we dip our food in liquid? At the beginning of the meal, a piece of potato is dipped in salt water to recall the tears that the Jews shed as slaves. Why do we eat in a reclining position? In ancient times, people who were free reclined on sofas while they ate. Today, cushions are placed on chairs to symbolize freedom and relaxation in contrast to slavery. These four questions should be asked spontaneously, and celebrations can't happen unless they're asked. Children are central to Passover proceedings and symbolize the continuity of the Jewish people. Customs are designed to hold their attention. There's the hunt for the Afikoman, where a piece of matzah is hidden which children have to find and hold ransom until a reward is given. Thank you, Dan. Most knowledgeable believers can recognize the unmistakable metaphor that's found in the Passover about Jesus Christ. The Passover points an arrow, if you will, to the passion of our Lord Jesus. Just as Israel was freed from the bondage of Egypt, so believers in Jesus Christ are freed from the bondage of slavery to sin. We know and we enjoy our freedom in Christ, do we not? Let me illustrate this for you. The Seder plate, as you saw in the video, has several items on it, one of which is the shank bone of a lamb. That was to remind the Jews of the paschal lamb whose blood was applied to the doorposts and lintels of homes. Today, we apply the blood of Christ to our lives, and he delivers us from bondage. As you know, as the last plague was brought upon Egypt, Moses instructed the, uh, the Jewish people to paint their doorposts and lintels with blood of a sacrificed lamb. God promised that the death angel, when he saw the blood, would pass over the house, sparing the life of the firstborn within. Obviously, the Passover is a symbol, a metaphor for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would die as the Lamb in our place, and his precious blood would save us from the death angel. I don't have time to go into all of the richness of the meaning of the Passover and the Seder meals, but I'd like to focus for a moment on the four cups of wine that are used during the meal. Each of these cups has a name. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second is the cup of judgment. The third, the cup of redemption. And the fourth is the cup of praise. Today, we will examine how Jesus uses these cups in their meanings in the Last Supper. Jesus will change the meaning of the last two cups when he introduces something completely new. After they had drunk from the first cup, the cup of sanctification, the Lord promised the twelve that the next time he drank with them, it would be in his coming kingdom. And after drinking from the third cup, the cup of redemption, he filled it with new meaning applying it to the new covenant that is found in his blood. This gives the Passover new meaning, infusing the Seder meal with something completely new. As you know, the Passover is celebrated by Israel to remember what God did for them. We read in Exodus chapter 6, God speaking to his chosen people, I am the Lord, and I will Bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you for my people, 
and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God promised Israel that he would save them. He would save them from their burdens and their bondage, and he did deliver them as promised. Now his promise that we are are really interested in is the one that says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. What does that point to? That points directly to the cross of Jesus as he died with his arms outstretched on the cross of Calvary. More on that in a bit as we make our way through the text. But first, let me remind you that in last week's uh, text in Matthew, we saw a stark contrast being made between Judas and the other 11 disciples. Judas was shown to be a schemer, a plotter, who fell into a league with the elites of Israel. If Judas had run for Congress, he would have struck a deal to hand over the current judge for execution. Just pay me 30 pieces of silver. Now now Jesus sits down with his friends at the Passover meal and reveals that he is quite aware of Judas's treachery. And he reveals that to Judas, as we saw in the video. I've provided you with an outline, a chronological uh, viewpoint of the Passion Week. Now, let me say, chronologies of this event are a bit difficult to discern, so it's helpful to look at the clearest statements that are found in the Synoptic Gospels, which are all in harmony with one another, and the Book of John. That means this Passover meal could have taken place, must have taken place, before the Passover lambs was slain at the temple. That event, the Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples must have taken place before the actual Passover meal being celebrated by Israel because Jesus is executed at the time the Passover lambs were being slain. Paul tells us, however, and Paul is under the divine inspiration of Scripture, of the Holy Spirit, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ is our Passover, our Passover having been sacrificed. In this text, Jesus gives directions, this text that we look at, to his disciples to prepare for this Passover meal that they will celebrate together. And he will invest it with new meaning as he relates to them his coming sacrifice as the real, authentic Paschal lamb uh, when he dies on the cross. This new meal will become the model for believers in the church age. Just as the Passover functioned in the past as a memory aid for Israel, so will the Lord's table function as a memory aid for those in this dispensation. So the Lord's table today functions exactly as the Passover meal did, as a memory aid so that we will not forget, that we will be reminded monthly or weekly or however often you take it of what Christ did for us at Calvary. Well then, That is our introduction. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, where we pick up with verse 17. This text can be found on page 689 of the Pew Bible. Once again, we're in the middle of the Passion Week, and we can see this on the handout. I know it's a little bit hard to read. Maybe you'll want to wait till you get home if you're a little bit older and have difficult eyesight to see that. But we see that there's been a progression of activity that has been centered in the temple and then on the Mount of Olives, and finally in Bethany. 
Last week, we saw Jesus at dinner in Bethany at Simon the leper's house, where he was anointed by an unnamed woman. I assume that this takes place as they are still there. But it's now Thursday, the 14th day of Nisan. Looking at verse 17, we read, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? That would make... That would be the first day of the eight-day celebration on which the Jews would be making preparation for the Passover, the 14th day of Nisan. This was an especially important day for Jewish ladies. They had a very long to-do list. On this day, a lot had to be done before the celebration could ensue. The lambs had to be ready for sacrifice, and Jesus, knowing his Arrest and death was imminent, uh, wanted to share this Passover meal, which would, he would be on the cross for a little bit early with his disciples. So that being so, uh, there would be no need for a lamb to be roasted and shared. Why not? Why not? The final, authentic, real, true lamb of God would be sacrificed at the time that the Jews were sacrificing their lambs at the temple. Now back to the Jewish ladies. Their first task on the to-do list was to clean out the leaven from their houses. Leaven had to be removed from every crook and cranny of the house since it was a symbol of evil. This is where the feast got its name. The women also had to prepare the dishes that accompanied the meal. Then the whole family would go to the temple and the lamb would be slaughtered by the priests and hung up to have the blood drained before roasting. In Egypt, as the Hebrews readied themselves to leave. They were told not to use the leaven in their bread since they would be in a great hurry to leave on the exit from the land. The Passover meal is a reminder of that taking place so many years before in Egypt. All of these preparations were to be done on the 14th of Nisan, that Thursday, that the Passover then anticipated on Friday at sunset. That's how Jews counted their days. We think of it as Saturday, but they think of it as beginning at sundown on Friday. That's how they counted. Oftentimes, this week that we're looking at is called the Passover week by Jews. As stated by Matthew, it says the disciples came to Jesus in the verse we just looked at, but in the book of John, we learned that it was actually just two of the disciples who came to Jesus, John and Peter, then receive these instructions that we're going to look at after they've inquired about the meal's preparation. Jesus sends the two of them off to make the needed arrangements for the meal that will be taking place that night. That night. They took, this took most of the day to make these preparations because it was not a small dinner. It would have been a dinner for 13 men at least. But where would the dinner be held? Jesus answers that for us in verse 18, saying... Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Obviously, the meal was going to take place in the city of Jerusalem because he instructs them to go into the city. We know that this is likely a home on Mount Zion, which has been traditionally celebrated as the place. And the disciples will 
always go to this place, this upper room in, in, on Mount Zion, in the future. It was likely a private home owned by someone who knew Jesus well, maybe even as the Messiah. Jesus instructs them to find this man, this certain man with whom the arrangements were made. The Another Gospel tells us that he could be identified by, by the fact that he was carrying a pitcher of water, which would have been unusual at this time because that was considered to be woman's work. Here we are told that Jesus says the reason for this, the motivation for all of this taking place early, is that uh, his time was near. His death was imminent. So the Lord is quite aware that there is this movement going on in which he will go to the cross and die later the next day. The two men, Peter and John, follow the man with the pitcher of water to a large upper room. Then the two go out and secure all of the necessary items, the bread, the bitter herbs, and the wine for use in the coming Passover meal. And as I said, they wouldn't need a lamb for this meal would have the lamb at the table with them. He was already scheduled to attend. All of these secret arrangements were done for a very specific reason. Jesus did not want to make known the place to Judas, who, as you know from last week, was in the process of betraying him. Now, all of the Jewish celebrations of the Passover at this time had to take place within the city of Jerusalem. So there would have been a very difficult, uh, it would have been a very difficult time trying to find a place to hold this. So many have conjectured, and I'm in agreement with this, that the location was probably the home of John Mark's family, who was very wealthy. John Mark, as you know, was a cousin of Barnabas, and he was a future ministry partner of Paul at first, and then Barnabas um, alone. John Mark was also a companion of Peter, and he would become his secretary in writing his gospel in the future. So it would not be surprising if John Mark's home was the place for this to take place and then the disciples to meet following Jesus' execution on Mount Zion. The likely explanation, as I said, for the secrecy is to guard the location ahead of time from Judas. Otherwise, Judas would have known where to send the Praetorian guards to capture and arrest Jesus. Now, notice the wonderful statement that we find in verse 19. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The two, John and Peter, did exactly as they were instructed by the Lord. They didn't have a better idea than what God had told them. You know, if there is anything you as a believer want to do in this life, it's do the will of God. Do as he instructs us in his word. If you do so, you will be fine at the coming judgment and you will be rewarded for your faithfulness to his word. Now, in verse 20, we read the announcement. Now, when evening came, or the beginning of the announcement. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. Here's 13 men sitting around, and, and I'm sorry that the video showed it the way the Rembrandt painted it, but they're sitting around a low table just off the floor. Each of the attendees has a pillow to lean on. 
John tells us that he leaned back against the breast of Jesus. As you know, in Middle Eastern cultures, table fellowship is exalted as the highest mode of hospitality. It was intimate and it was personal. The Passover meal normally had two or more families joined together because of what the Talmud instructed. The Talmud said that a minimum of 10 people must be at a Passover meal. The reason for that is there's a lot of lamb to eat and the lamb has to be consumed. So the Lord shares this meal with his 10 or with his closest advisors, the 12 disciples. Now we we learn in verse 21, as they were eating, the Lord said to them, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Holy cow, what a bummer on the meal, huh? Can you imagine them all looking around? Might even ruin their meal. Now for sure, this is not the first time Jesus told the twelve that he was going to die in Jerusalem, and that one of them would betray him. But the Lord said it was one of them who will now hand him over to the authorities. You'll recall that, as I explained previously last week, that the Greek word that's used and normally translated in the King James as betrays actually better understood as hand over or deliver up. However you understand the word, the idea remains the same. There's a traitor in the midst who will turn Jesus over and have him arrested. Notice the reaction of the disciples to this announcement by Jesus. They were deeply grieved. And each one began to say to each other, remember, they're seated across the table from one another, not around in a twelve. It's directly across from one another. And all of them began to say to to him, Jesus, surely not I, Lord. They were pained by this revelation and his words, and they asked if it was themselves that would do the betrayal. It's not me, is it, Lord? I always wondered why they would ask that question. It's not me. Wouldn't they have known? All are deeply grieved. The Greek sentence Uh, construction tells us that the question they asked Jesus expects a no answer. Something like, I'm not the culprit, am I? They are so shaken by this information that they cannot even trust their own recollections from 36 years ago. Look, Lord, you can't possibly mean me. I don't have any remembrance of this. Every one of these men, however, knew deep within themselves, that it was possible for them to have betrayed the Lord. The truth is, it's part of human nature. We're sinners. I wonder if you've ever made that discovery in your own heart and mind. Some of you would insist to this a question like that. Oh, I'd never do something like that, Pastor. Really? Are you sure? The truth is, I'd betray him in five minutes if he didn't keep me in his grip. It's only because of his grace that I don't fall to pieces. And the truth is the same about you. How do I know that? Clearly. The disciples couldn't discern the difference between themselves and Judas. So don't go bragging on yourselves. You're no better than they are. You would have done and had the same questions 
They didn't have a clue if it was them or not. Jesus, however, treated the twelve equally. No bias is shown by Jesus against Judas. I find that totally remarkable. He was patient and loving and kind to Judas. But I wonder, but I wonder if you notice the way that Jesus was spoken to by Judas. The eleven call him Lord. Did you notice that? In fact, only those who believe in the Messiah, in, the Messiah, in Jesus as the Christ, ever call him Lord in the book of Matthew. That's going to be really important for a minute, so just keep that in mind. It wouldn't surprise me, however, because I'm aware of man's sinful nature, that all of them didn't just start pointing the finger at one another. You know, hey, it's not me, Lord, but it's probably Sue. It's not me, Lord, it's probably Bud. Isn't that the tendency of human beings? Instead of looking at ourselves and examining our own hearts, we want to quickly point out it's somebody else's fault. Now, Jesus answers them. He just doesn't leave them wondering. He answers them. He says in verse 22, He who dips his hand in the bowl with me is the one who will betray me. Since this is a communal meal, all of the disciples were probably doing this at some point in time, maybe even at the same time. The twelve were dipping their bread into a common dish that was mixed with both nuts and bitter herbs. John tells us over in his book, this, that is the one who, whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when Jesus dipped the morsel, John says, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Wow. Judas is clearly identified by John as the culprit, but not by Matthew. Well, why? Perhaps it was because of the seating chart. As I tried to point out, the video is totally wrong. Jesus and John, uh, Jesus and John were sitting next to him, John on his right, and Peter was across the table from him, and Judas was on his left in a seat of honor. It could have been that Matthew was down at the end of the table and just couldn't hear all of this conversation taking, point, taking place. But it's not really important. Because I believe Matthew wanted to hold his readers in tension and reveal this later. Clearly, Matthew doesn't identify Judas as the culprit, but he does emphasize the deceitful and evil nature of his actions and choices. The betrayal occurs amongst the closest and the most intimate of Jesus' inner circle. And Jesus dips the morsel in, mixed with the bitter herbs, and hands it to Judas. This depicts the bitterness of his crucifixion. This, of course, pictures the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. This, too, pictures the bitterness of the slavery to sin that each and every one of us has experienced. Jesus dips the morsel in and hands it to Judas. And in verse 24 we read, The Son of Man is to go up. This is Jesus speaking. Just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow. There it is. Clear. The Lord knows the fate of Judas has been sealed. 
Judas is fulfilling prophecy that the Lord's close friend would betray him. How do I know that? The psalmist tells us in chapter 20, uh, 41 and verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus was fully aware that this was written about him. He was fully aware of what was written in Isaiah 53 about his impending death on the cruel instrument of the cross. He was, after all, the author of Scripture, so he knew it. A couple of weeks ago, I had a company come to bid on moving our furniture from Washington State to Virginia. The man who came to give me my bid was originally from Israel, a Jew, but he's now married to an American Gentile Christian. We talked about Israel and my love for Israel, and uh, we discussed how most Jews are actually secular rather than religious, and he professed to be secular, basically, but to be a spiritual man of interest. He went to, um, he went to church on Sundays with his wife, and he went to temple on Friday nights. I asked him if he read the Tanakh, that's the Jewish scriptures we call the Old Testament. He admitted he did not, so I asked him if he would do me the favor of reading a particular passage of scripture. Which passage do you think I asked him to read? In fact, I went and copied it on the copier and gave him a copy of it. Isaiah 53. He professed to have no knowledge of it. So I sent him home with a copy of that text and asked him to read it, to think about it, to contemplate it, and if he had questions, to call me. In Isaiah 53, we clearly have the suffering, sacrificed Lord, the Son of Man, as Daniel calls him, Jesus' favorite term for himself. And this could only be the Lord Jesus Christ. This man suffers and dies exactly as Jesus does at Calvary. However, for that to be accomplished, a willing man had to step forward to forsake him. And in this verse, we see both sides of the controversy. The difference between, or the harmony between, however you look at it, human choice and divine will. We see that in the Passion event. From a divine standpoint, Judas's treachery was predicted and required for God's plan to come to completion. We know that because Zechariah tells us, I said to them, If it's good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I valued, I I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver, threw them at the potter in the house of the Lord. Here we see in a figure, in a metaphor of the coming actions of Judas, who will sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is a biblical paradox, if you will. All of these events must take place for the will of God to, take, to happen, but it also requires the free will and the cooperation of a sinful man. And it happens just as it was written. But that doesn't in any way relieve Judas of personal culpability. This same paradox of God's sovereign purpose 
and man's responsibility runs throughout the scripture from the book of Genesis through Revelation. From a human point of view, Judas is guilty of a terrible sin and crime and completely responsible for for what he did. From a divine point of view, God was working out his will behind the scenes towards the desired goal. The sovereignty of God and man's responsibility are not in conflict, even though we might not be able to understand it. It works together. It really does. Now, in Job chapter 3, he reminds us of something important. Do you remember when he was going through his terrible afflictions and his friends came and advised him to kill himself or to blame it on his wife or whatever? We read in Job chapter 3, that Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Let that day perish on which I was born and the night on which I was conceived. There it is. It would have been better if Job had never been born in his mind. Jesus says it would have been better if Judas had never been born. Now, verse 24, if you want to look at it, it contains one of those pesky conditional statements. If, you might want to circle that. The Greek sentence construction tells us that this is a second-class conditional clause. That is contrary to fact. So the premise of the statement is assumed to be false for the sake of argument. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a divine necessity, but it was also predictive of his future punishment. It's too bad he has to be punished, but this is required. Therefore, if he had never been born, would have been better because he would have avoided eternal punishment for his actions. Now, all of the disciples express deep grief when Jesus tells them of the betrayal of himself by one of them. And yet, Judas seems to evoke the excuse of victimhood. He would have fit right, right in with this 21st century mentality we have in our country It didn't start with us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But notice in verse 25, Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Surely not I, Rabbi. Judas joins the chorus of denials made by the other 11. He's hoping that he will hear the same retort by Jesus, that he was not the one who he had in mind. Surely not I, Rabbi. Of course not, Brutai. No, but Jesus doesn't say that. First, before we go on to what Jesus said, look what Judas calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi rather than Lord. He's the only one of the 12 to ever use the term rabbi in the book of Matthew. He uses it respectfully, for sure, because anyone in Israel called rabbi is a respected teacher. But this is a smokescreen to hide his disrespect for the Lord. He was just like the hypocrites, the religious elites, who complimented Jesus by calling him rabbi, teacher, or master when they were in the process of planning to kill him. Just like Judas Now, the title Lord is Kiri in the Greek and is an appropriate title for a divine person of Christ. But Rabbi is totally inconsistent if you hold that belief that he is Lord. So Jesus is is Lord, but not teacher to us. He is our Lord. Importantly, the gospel record shows us a progression 
of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. From the very beginning, there's a progression taking place here in the text. First, the betrayer is identified as one of the twelve. Then Jesus says next that his betrayer will dip his bread into the dish at the same time that he does. Lastly, Judas now tells uh, Jesus tells Judas now point blank that he is the betrayer. He says to him, "Yes, you have said it yourself." Or, "Yes, you are the one." Or in English, American English, it would have been, "You got it, pal. You're the one." It's weird, though, isn't it, how the other disciples were totally oblivious to all of this that was going on around them. You see, I believe if they knew Judas was the betrayer, he never would have gotten out of that room. They would have stopped him. Peter would have taken out his tiny little sword, right, and done something about it. But from the book of John, we know that's not what happened. In John chapter 13, we read that, And I quote, No one at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, that is Judas. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was telling him to buy these things which we have need of at the feast. Jesus has just told him to go ahead and depart and do what you're going to do. And that he would give some of that to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately into the night. You see, Judas had to leave in order for the progression of the Passover meal to be turned into the Lord's table. If the disciples were to receive the new covenant from Jesus, which he transforms, the Passover, Judas had to leave. Now back to our text, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. Now watch this. He says, take, eat, this is my body. This begins the process of changing completely the Passover into the Lord's table. We have the institution of the new covenant that was spoken of back in the Old Testament by Jesus. They are in the midst of what we call the Seder meal today, but Jesus takes the matzah bread, the unleavened bread, lifts it up, and he says, this is my body. Now, they were all expecting him to say, what every household in Israel would have said at this point. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. But Jesus doesn't do that. He gives the bread completely new meaning. Jesus says, first of all, to his disciples, take, eat. This is a command. They're to ingest the bread into their body. And what are they to ingest according to this? My body. His body. Obviously, that's a figure of speech, of an intimate relationship between Jesus and his disciples. He's not picking off his flesh and saying, eat my body, is he? No. He's using the bread as an illustration of an intimate personal relationship in which we ingest the teaching of Jesus and become like him. Please note that only Matthew records this command and that it's written as a Greek imperative. It could have just as well have been translated as, eat this now. Internalize my teaching. Or as Paul will later write to the Corinthians, do this. And then Paul gives us some really good information. In remembrance of me. That's going to be important in a little bit. This is personal participation as a disciple in everything that is related to Jesus, his death, 
and his crucifixion. I believe when he said, this is my body, he literally pointed at the bread and to himself. It was his body of sacrifice at the, as the Lamb of God at the temple, dying for humankind's sins that saves us. He's saying with these words that I'm changing the whole meaning and the whole purpose of the Passover meal. No longer would believers look at the redemption of Israel from Egypt, but they were now to look back to the redemption of their spiritual lives at the cross of Calvary. The bread and the wine are the outward symbols that were celebrated at the Passover meal. The death angel passed over the sins of the nation. And just as when we know Christ, our sins are passed over or paid for by what he did at the cross of Calvary. As I said, the unleavened bread represents the hasty departure of Israel from Egypt. The bitter herbs represent the awful slavery. These elements were in the Seder and on the Seder plate and represent the traditional Passover. However, the participants expected that these would, the participants never expected that these would in any way be, as taught today by many Christian denominations, magically transformed into the actual blood and body of Jesus. Jesus holds up these elements and he's not saying hocus pocus over them and then they're transformed into his actual bread and body. They are simply a remembrance. They never would have expected something like that to take place. The obvious meaning cannot be missed as being anything other than symbolic. Now I know many of you have attended churches in the past which looked at those elements as being the actual blood and body of Christ. More on that in a minute. So Jesus is standing in their midst, his physical body, all could see him. So when they heard him use these terms, my body, my blood, they did not think in literal, concrete terms. Jesus often used metaphors like this, as you know. He called himself the door. That didn't mean you knock on his forehead. It means he was the entranceway into heaven. He called himself the good shepherd. He called himself a vine. So they were used, just as you should be used to, seeing metaphors and figures in the scriptures. Now that brings us to the second element of the Passover meal, which is converted into the Lord's table, which we celebrate today in remembrance of Jesus. And when he had taken a cup, which cup is the question, and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. Once again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to anybody who showed up at church at the upper room. Right? This is given to his disciples, those who were committed to him. Jesus takes up the cup. And again, as I said, which cup is this? The first cup, the third cup, the fourth cup, the second cup? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but an education would be that uh, an educated guess would be that this is the third cup. Do you recall what the third cup represented? It was the cup of redemption. Once again, Jesus employs an imperative or command, if you will, in this text, saying to them, "Drink it, drink from it, all of you." But first, the Lord gave thanks for the redemption of man. That would be his sacrifice at Calvary, his death, his substitutionary death in our place. Literally, he was giving thanks for his body being placed on the cross and his shed blood, which pays for the sins 
of humankind. He took the cup of redemption and he now gives it new meaning. As you know, the old covenant in the, in the law of Moses was given to Israel, but the new covenant was given to all who believe and trust in Jesus. So while he's speaking to men who are currently under the law, and the law required a yearly sacrifice in order to cover their sins, he is now changing that through this action, and that his death will once for all pay for all of humankind's sin. But it must be applied by the individual to their own lives. It would not require a, an animal sacrifice. Animals weren't any good. It would require the perfect lamb. And it wouldn't provide just a partial redemption. It would be a complete redemption by his blood. That's why the writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrew, I should say, in chapter 8 says this, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, it wasn't, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Finding fault with them, he says, this is God, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and minds. I will write them on their hearts and minds. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete Close quote. There it is. Jesus takes the third cup of redemption and says to his disciples, drink from it, and then he gives thanks. That's not what the head of household in an, in an Israelite house did during the Seder. He would say, together we take up the third cup of wine, now recalling the third, the third divine promise to, his people of Israel, to the people of Israel, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. They celebrated that which they knew not of it personally or corporately. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All four cups celebrated in the Exodus in chapter 6 of the book were these promises given to Israel that they will in the future enjoy in the coming millennial kingdom when Jesus is king of Israel. That's why Jesus instituted the new covenant in the first place so that his people could know him personally and enjoy his kingdom in the future. It is out with the old covenant and in with something new. Look with me at verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you can't see, that's a metaphor. I don't know what's wrong with you. As you know, the Mosaic covenant in the past had been sealed with the blood of of an animal. In an Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, gross, and said, Behold the Lamb of the Covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. There it is. 
The old covenant was made was a promise made by one who is greater to one who is lesser in standing for the lesser's benefit. This is like an agreement between a king and his vassal. The king promises to do something for the vassal without the vassal having to do anything. God is the greater and we are the lesser in the old agreement. That agreement wasn't working, so he makes a new agreement. The Mosaic Covenant was done away with and a better one was put in its place. Instead of the blood of sacrificed animals being poured out at the temple, it would be based on the blood of Jesus poured out once at the cross. His blood would seal the deal between the greater God in heaven and us, the lesser humankind. The disciples had seen this practice of the pouring out of the Lamb's blood their whole lives but it didn't change Israel. No longer now would it be an animal's blood that was, must be spilled yearly to cover the sins of Israel, but it would be the precious blood of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord, that would be poured out. And the Old Covenant was the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled upon the people that confirmed it, but that had proved to be totally inadequate. Once again, we turn to the book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10, to see this applied to the church today. For the law, since it was only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of year by year of sins. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of an heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, how much more, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? For what reason? He tells us to serve the living God. It is for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced when the one who made it lives. Think of your um, death certificate and, and your will. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated with, without blood. As Moses, according to the law, took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled it, both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. That's been replaced. There it is. Jesus has transformed the elements and we have these visible reminders of the past for us, his death in our place, for which we should thank God. The bread and the wine remind us of 
the second agreement, what he has done for us, the promise of our redemption. Notice in the text it says the many who participate in this, not the all, there is no universalism in the scripture. The many who participate, that is eating and drinking of the bread and wine, identify themselves with the death of Christ and receive the benefits of this covenant. Thus, Jesus has rendered the first covenant null and void, replacing it with this new covenant, this new agreement. We see this clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet predicted in verse 31, this new agreement saying, days are coming. Israel, have hope. Be assured, days are coming. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with your fathers. I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel. After those days I will put my law within them and on their hearts and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man to his neighbor and each man to his brother saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the last of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and they will sin. I will remember their sin no more. That's got to be the millennial kingdom. Then in chapter 36 of the same book, Jeremiah writes, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. They're filled with the Spirit of God. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The law is going to be reinstated in the millennial kingdom, by the way. And you will live in the land and I will give to your foref- that I gave to your forefathers. And so you will be my people and I will be your God. Praise God. Now, I just want to address for a moment the way that the elements are changed in meaning, but not to the way many denominations understand them. There are those who say the elements carry the presence of God in it. Some say that the elements actually change into the very blood and um, body of Christ. These folks interpret the Lord's words, which were meant to be metaphorical, literally, which is what they accuse us of. Thus they develop a skewed theological perspective on the atonement of Jesus Christ. They argue the bread and the wine of communion magically become the actual body and blood of Jesus, of which they eat. That's why when you see the Catholics pass it, they can't drop any bread on the floor. That would be dropping the body of Christ on the floor. Obviously, this is a skewed version. The Roman Catholics call this transubstantiation. It transforms into the blood and body of Christ. Transubstantiation. Now, one priest, or a group of priests, during the Reformed period didn't buy into that, okay? Uh, The Reformed preacher that didn't buy into it was named Martin Luther. Instead of the transforming view of the bread and body, he substituted a similar view, which is called the consubstantiation. That's even more difficult to believe in than the first, in my opinion. This ascribes the notion to the bread and wine as remaining bread and wine, but the elements 
DNA within it, in a sense, contains, sort of has present in it, his actual blood and body. So in other words, it's not really is, but it is. I don't get it. Calvin taught that the spiritual presence of the Lord was under the elements, a similar teaching as this, but not actually the physical presence. This has been the doctrine of the Reformed churches ever since. However, another guy named Ehrlich Zwingling, great name, wouldn't you like to be that Ehrlich? Hey, Ehrlich Zwingling, get over here. Uh, A Swiss reformer, I don't know why that came out, sorry, uh, in the 1500s suggested that the body and blood of Christ were merely symbols, boy, finally, 1500 years to get this, symbols of Christ's sacrifice. However, this did not sit well with the trans or the consubstantiations. The controversy has existed to this day and never been resolved. We here at Lacey Chapel agree with Zwingling that the bread and the wine do not magically transform or contain or become or consist of Jesus' body and blood. They are metaphors. They are figures to remind us, believers, of his sacrifice as well as the blessings of the new covenant. His sacrifice was once for all, not a mass which has to be done every Sunday. They killed Jesus every Sunday. If you look at that cross, right there, look at it. What's missing? Jesus. He's not dead. We don't break his body and drink his blood every Sunday. We celebrate what's already completed. That's why our crosses are empty. As the writer of, he, come on, you guys, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices that can never take away sins, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now I switch over to chapter 8. For I will be merciful, says God, to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. My dear ones, I know you say this, and it's wrong. Jesus didn't come and cover your sins. Jesus Paid for your sins. You are as perfect as Christ. All your sins were taken care of at his cross. Now you might live contrary to that fact. But the truth is, when you believe, when you appropriate Christ's death as your own, you are as perfect as he is, standing in front of the Lord. Now hopefully our experience here lives up to our standing If not, you better get on the stick. Because one day your motives will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's logical and biblical to understand the Lord's table as a memorial. A memorial! It's designed to remind us of his finished work at the cross that has provided us our redemption already. Albeit, notice the words once again, for many. This does not apply to all people. There is no such thing as universal salvationism. 
Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is only applicable to those who make it efficacious by believing and trusting in him alone. Salvation is a free gift. It's not merited or earned in any way. All your righteousness are as filthy rags, says the scriptures. It's a free gift. The Passover, the Seder meal, is like an LED pointer spotlighting on the Lamb as the one and only person, God-man, who could take away the sins of the world. Finally, verse 29, Jesus, Jesus concludes, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day in which I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's looking way past his passion, way past the church age, and he's looking towards his second coming. Praise God, the rapture is going to happen and we're going to join him when he comes again. And he's looking towards that, towards his chosen people, Israel, celebrating and participating in his kingdom. We know this is the millennial kingdom. And there he will drink of the vine once again. It's called my father's kingdom because it's referencing a point in time. It divides the present time from a future time or that day, as it says here in the scripture, which is a technical term for the end times taking place. Notice who Jesus says will be with him in the kingdom. Did you notice? On that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, with you. Who? His disciples. They're going to be there with them. So this was not anywhere near in the future, but sometime down the corridor of time when he establishes his kingdom. They will be there with him in his father's kingdom. Obviously, this points to not only the millennium, but the eternal state when Jesus turns it all over to his father. Today, we celebrate the Lord's table to remind us of what he did for us. Soon, we too will join him with Israel and celebrate his Father's kingdom in the time to come. However, at this moment, we realize that our Lord Jesus is with his Father making intercession for us. Now, the Seder meal is almost over. He picks up that last cup and drinks from it. And it was traditional to understand this cup is the cup of blessing, the cup of victory. And the last cup we see in verse 30 when they sing the Hallel. That is the Psalms 113 through 118. The Israelites would sing that as they were descending from the Mount of Zion and Mount Calvary and all the mounts there as they descended down the hill from the temple into lower Jerusalem. And in verse 30 we read, After singing a hymn, the disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. As per the Seder celebration and custom, they left the time of celebration of God's redemption singing. About a 15-minute walk across the valley up to the Mount of Olives. So what does all this mean for you and me? First of all, we should never conclude that the Lord's table or communion has any grace within it. There is no forgiveness in it you should have already experienced that grace and forgiveness when you believed and trusted in him at the moment of justification. We are forgiven at the moment we receive the free gift. Our participation in the Lord's table should remind us of that, something he's already done for us. We are justified by our beliefs, 
not by our actions. The Passover meal functioned for Israel just as it functions for us, as a memory aid. These commands are given to disciples is something that we should recognize. Not to anybody that comes to church, not to anybody that shows up, not to anybody that just nods in agreement. These commands were given to who? The disciples. Participating in this table is an indication that we've internalized him and his teaching. The question that leaves us with this morning is this. Have you? You can ingest the little piece of whatever that thing is we chew on and drink that little bit of grape juice. That's all well and good. But have you internalized the teaching of Jesus? Are you his disciple? That's the question. Would you close with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the Lord's table. We're thankful that we get a needed reminder of it in our lives. The great privilege that is ours to know him personally. To have the spirit of God indwell us, live within us. Help us not to quench the spirit. Help us, Lord, to allow it to transform our lives and thinking about everything, even politics. Help us, Lord, to understand your will, your purpose, and help us to be in harmony with it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.